Um, I love preaching. It's one of my favorite things. I also love not preaching when I know that uh, someone called by God will be sharing the word with us this morning. And so I'm excited today to listen to the sermon instead of preach it. Through uh, the good leadership of Carrie Reeves, who we hired recently to be our catalyst for outreach, and Maria Prizer, faith, through Faithful Presence, um, I was introduced a number of months ago to Michael DiStefano. Did I say that right? Yeah. Uh, who works for Amira. Uh, we'll talk a little more about that after his sermon. He is going to be delivering the sermon today, but I'm going to do the scripture reading. So if you have your Bible, we're in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, amen. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Matt. And it is such an honor to be here with you all today. Um, I have been in the state of Connecticut for about a year and a half uh, with Amira, and it's just been such a joy to be in this part of the country, um, furthering the things that God is doing through uh, the work of his people. And, uh, and I'm thrilled to get to be in this space today with all of you. Uh, your pastor, Matt, goes on record uh, as sending one of the kindest emails we've ever received as an organization uh, and giving me the, the warmest welcome uh, that I've received since my time in Connecticut. We got to spend a little bit of time together on a couple of different occasions, uh, and he literally sent me off with a wedding present. And uh, just such a kind man um, who, who uh, uh, really welcomed me in and um, helped me to feel at home in this space. And so I'm thrilled to get to be here with you this morning, and I'm thrilled to get to preach the word of God to you. And so um, with that, uh, I'm, I'm excited to jump in. Let me say a, a quick prayer for us uh, over the sermon, and then we'll dive into God's word together. Lord, thank you for this morning, and thank you for an opportunity um, to hear your word and to receive it. Thank you for an opportunity uh, to be changed by the goodness of your name and the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, I do pray this morning that you would give us light for the mind, that you would illuminate our thinking, that you would help us to understand you for who you are. I pray that you would help us to understand the beauty that is your word and the depth therein. And, Lord, I pray that you would. You'd give us heat for the heart, that you would warm our affections for you, um, that you would help us to, to see you as the true 
source of life. The satisfaction to the hunger that we all feel. And Lord, I pray that you would warm our affections towards one another and towards this world. Um, We love you, God. We look to you in this moment, and we pray all that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning's sermon with a confession, and it's this. I've never seen the movie Princess Bride. I've never seen the movie Princess Bride, and normally when I say that out loud in front of people, I get an audible reaction, a gasp, a thumbs down, some sort of negative response to that, because for many people, it's considered one of the best movies ever made. Certainly, it's a cult following, and uh, it's, it's absolutely one of the most quotable movies ever made. And so I've been in groups of people, and I can quote the movie extensively. Uh, I know that someone named Wesley is coming for someone else. I know that uh, someone killed somebody else's father, and he should be prepared to die. I've sat in groups of friends where they've all said, marriage, and they all laughed, and I had no idea why. I can quote the movie extensively, but when people bring these points up, it does nothing to me emotionally as they laugh and they remember, because I've never seen the movie. Um, And we need story to construct meaning. We need story to construct meaning. Uh, And so for them, it brings up all these emotions, positive memories. Uh, Maybe for you, you've never seen it. You're like me, and you don't care. But the point that I want to make this morning is that we need story to construct meaning. So there was a philosopher by the name of Alistair McIntyre, and he talked about this point. He said, imagine that you're standing outside of a a bus stop or a gas station, um, and a man walks up to you uh, with a tweed jacket, uh, shirt tucked in, leans in, and he says, the name for the common wild duck is Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus. How do you respond? What do you do next? Well, the answer is, it depends, right? It depends entirely upon the context. And so one possible context is a case of mistaken identity. That he's a professor, he thought you were one of his students, and you had asked him earlier in the day, Professor, what is the name for the common wild duck? And he was like, oh, George, I just remembered it's Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus, Hysterinicus. And then he walks off. Uh, And you might, in in response to that, laugh, because that's kind of funny. Or another possible scenario is that he is uh, crazy. Uh, He doesn't know the difference between himself and a coffee mug. He thinks he's Napoleon. Uh, He's just walking around saying things that make no sense, and that is sort of sad, right? Or a third possible scenario is that you're a spy, and he is walking up to you, and he's speaking the code at the pre-approved rendezvous point that will enact the mission, right? And that response is pretty dramatic. But the way that we respond to each of those scenarios depends entirely upon the context, And I mentioned that this morning for this reason, that if we understand the context, if we can understand the story that we're living in, then we can respond well. But if we misunderstand the context, if we misunderstand the story that we're living in, we will misappropriate our response. We need story to construct meaning. And if we're going to respond well, we've got to understand the context that we're living in. And so I mentioned that for this reason, because we're living in unprecedented times. Uh, It's a difficult world um, around us in these days. And so many of us who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, are asking that question, what does faithfulness look like in these days? How do I respond faithfully to the things that are happening around me? And if we're going to respond to that question well, we need to understand the story. We can never respond appropriately if we don't understand the context in which we live. And so to frame it out for us this morning, I want to go to the context. What is our story? To answer that question, 
I want to go to the passage that Pastor Matt read to us this morning in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This is a passage that if you grew up in a uh, more traditionally liturgical church, um, which I just learned what that word liturgy actually means, we often think about that as structure within a service, but uh, if you've grown up in a more structured uh, uh, church calendar, you would have read this passage on what's commonly referred to as Ascension Sunday. This is the Ascension passage, and what it is, is it's the final conversation with Jesus and his disciples. It's the final conversation of the risen Christ. He gets one shot at saying one last thing in bodily form to his disciples before he literally ascends into heaven. And it's a dramatic moment. I imagine that you might be uh, sitting at home right now, sipping your coffee, gathered um, with your family, or maybe alone in your bedroom or in your living room watching this, and you might be mildly interested in what I have to say to you this morning. But if you knew that I had just died, been declared dead, buried, three days later burst forth through the grave by the power of God for the purpose of delivering to you one last word this morning, you might lean in a little closer, I'm guessing. And that's this moment, that this is Jesus, and he has changed the world radically with his teaching. He has warmed the hearts of his followers with his compassionate movement towards them and towards the world. He has died, been buried, and then burst forth from the grave by the power and authority of God, and he gets one final conversation with his disciples, these men and women who have walked with him from the beginning, that their hearts were changed by his teaching, that they slept near him on the hillside, that they mourned when he was crucified, that they're still bewildered at his presence after the resurrection, and that Jesus, this, this friend of theirs, leans in, and he has one final conversation with them, and he says to them, don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, because when he comes, you will receive power. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it says, as he said these things, he was lifted up out of their sight, literally ascends into heaven. And we don't know how long the disciples sat there, mouths open, gazing into heaven as he went, just absolutely stupefied with the realization that this man they'd been walking with, whose death they mourned, whose resurrection they celebrated, he's going to sit now at the right hand of God, signifying his authority over all things, and they now realize finally and completely he's God. He's God. And they sit there, mouths open, absolutely stupefied, gazing into heaven. And I don't know how long they sat there with their mouths open, looking into heaven, but we know it was long enough. I don't know if you caught this as we read the passage this morning, but it was long enough for God to send two angels. Uh, and they show up and they say, hey, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? Go to Jerusalem, uh, because he's going to send the Holy Spirit, and you're going to receive power, and then you're meant to go to be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I don't know if that moment ever struck you in the reading of this passage, but there's a point in that that I want us to grab, and it's this, that as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we were never meant to simply gaze into heaven. As disciples of Jesus, we were never meant to simply gaze into heaven. We were meant to move with God as he moves on this planet, because our God is on the move. And so as we look out in this world today, we can see that there are many things that are causing hurt, pain, anxiety, difficulty, as we even prayed this morning uh, in our prayer. 
and yet we know that we have a God who is active, a God who is moving, a God who sends his son and his people towards this world that's hurting. And as disciples of Jesus, we were never meant to simply gaze into heaven. We were meant to move with God as he moves on this planet. And this is an important point. Because I think for so many of us, we look around and we see that there is objectively massive decline in church attendance. Uh, There is an increase in interest in spiritual things, but there is a, a decline in people who are finding answers to those spiritual things within the church of Jesus. And so I read a book um, when I started into ministry about 10 years ago called You Lost Me. It was a book written by the Barna Research Group. David Kinneman authored it. And, uh, and they interviewed thousands and thousands of young people. And they asked them, why did you leave the church? And they noticed a trend uh, that's been happening subtly over the last several years. And they said, first, if you look back at the boom or the builder generation, uh, they just sort of went to church. It was a culturally expected uh, thing that you would get up on Sunday mornings, you would get your family ready, and you would go to church. And they just did their entire lives. And then the boomer, boomer generation came along, and many of them, when they became young adults or left the home to go to college, many of them left the church. But then many of them returned. There was sort of an exodus and then a return. And then the next generation, the millennial generation, came along, my generation, and many of them left the church, but then fewer a fewer percentage of them returned. And then the generation after, Generation Z, even more have left the church and even fewer have returned. And you can see that clear downward trajectory. And we have to ask the question, why is that? How did that happen? What's gone wrong here? Because Jesus said, in my presence is the fullness of joy. And at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. That there should be something that is inherently life-giving, soul-satisfying about this space, about gathering with the people of God to worship God and then to move with God. And yet the answer to that question, as they interviewed thousands and thousands of young people who have left the church, they asked, why did you leave? And their overwhelming response became the title of the book, You Lost Me. It wasn't some theological question that they couldn't answer or some scandal that scandalized them, and they said, I'm done. It was just this simple, I, w- I, I spent my, my young years in the church going to church, reading the stuff, attending the conferences, going to the gatherings, and at the end of the day, it just, you lost me. I found more life outside of the church than I did inside. And that's a problem, because Jesus said, in my presence is the fullness of joy, and at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Uh, Jesus said that I came so that you might have the fullness of life. And so we're, we're left to, to acknowledge this reality that either the psalmist was wrong and Jesus was lying, or we have vastly misrepresented what it means to be a people who know and walk with God. And I would submit to you that for so many of us, we've spent our lives growing up in the house of God, learning things about God, but we've never really gotten to know God because we've never really moved with him. So a simple way to illustrate that would be, uh, just after I graduated from college, I have an uncle in my family who we call the fun man. Uh, He is sort of a wild man. He's got a a home in Crested Butte, Colorado, one in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, He's got a surf shack at the tip of the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. He's won surf competitions all over the world. He's climbed mountains on many continents. He's got a long beard. He is basically just a living North Face ad. That's my uncle. And uh, we call him the fun man. 
man. And so right after I graduated from college, uh, he invited me to come spend a week with him out in California uh, and to have sort of an adventure with him. And I said, I would love to, but I'm 22 and I just started into ministry. And if you don't know this, uh, for those of you uh, who are worshiping with us online, if you don't know this, when you start into ministry and you're 22 years old, they pay on average about a dollar a year. Like one dollar a year is your salary normally. And, uh, and so that's how much money I was making. And I said, I would love to come spend some time with you out in California, but uh, I don't have the cash at the moment. And he said, look, you just pay for your plane ticket. I'll take care of everything else. When you're here, I got you. And I said, okay, deal. So I bought my plane ticket, got on the plane, landed there, walked into his multi-million dollar tiny little home out in Santa Cruz, California. And, uh, and it was nice. It was this beautiful little space that was tucked into the hillsides right on the coast. His bathroom floors were heated and it was just this amazing experience. My uncle, who had uh, been single until he was 40, had just gotten married and had a little girl. And so it was amazing to watch this wild man sort of be a father for the first time. And I loved hanging out in the house of my uncle. But because he's my uncle, that's not all we did. Day one, he comes bounding into the living room with an idea. Hey, let's go mountain biking. I'm from Texas. I thought I was a mountain biker. It turns out we don't have mountain biking in Texas. We have trail riding. Uh, and I went mountain biking for the first time. And it was incredible. It was lush and it was green. We're biking through literal redwood trees, like so big you could actually ride your bike through a hollowed out old tree. It was incredible. Uh, but we didn't stop there. The next day we went surfing. This was just a couple of days before Christmas. And so we were two of the only people insane enough to be in the Pacific Ocean in December, but there we were. And I remember putting on that wetsuit, paddling out, and the deep blue of the ocean sort of rolling under my board, and seeing the quaint little sound, the town of Santa Cruz tucked into the, to the hillside, and um, just feeling the, the, um, the awe of that moment. And then these massive swells sort of going over my board, and I just wasn't ready for that level of wave. And I remember letting one go under my board, and then my uncle catching that wave, and, uh, and he just sort of carved to the top of that thing, and I could see his head sort of emerge over the top of the wave, and he's looking behind him, and I'm looking in front of me, and he just sort of carves over the top of that wave, and he goes, I'm a beast, and then just disappears behind the wave, and I was like, you are a beast. I, I'm, I'm with you, and, uh, but we weren't done yet. We went the next day. My uncle uh, took me to church, which was interesting because he's not a believer in Jesus, and yet he had just had a little girl. She started asking spiritual questions, so he started asking spiritual questions, and so they started going to church together, and he took me to church with him. And the church that we went to was uh, pastored by one of his surfer buddies. And so the pastor walks out, uh, it was very casual, sort of in a, um, an elementary school cafeteria. The band is kind of going for it. The pastor comes out with his jeans and his long blonde hair. And as the music dies down, I'll never forget, he said, let's everyone just take a moment and think about how gnarly God is. <laughs> right? and, uh, and I looked up to laugh, but nobody was laughing. They were all just like, Totally, right? Like that was such a normal thing for him to say. And, and yet from there, we went snowboarding. And so we were mountain biking, we're surfing, and then we pack up and we go four hours to the Sierra Nevada mountains to go snowboarding for a couple of days. And it was the coolest vacation of my life. And so when I got home and people were like, how was your vacation? I was like, it was epic. I don't even have words for it. We're in the ocean one day. We're jumping off a, a snowboard jumps the next day. It was incredible. And I mention that to you for this reason. Imagine how different my response would have been if every time somebody asked me the question, how was your vacation? If every time my uncle came into the living room with a board or a bike or an adventure, 
And he said, hey, come ride with me. And every time I said, no thanks, I'm good here. The bathroom floors are heated. I don't know if you knew that, right? If I just hung out in the house the whole time, how different my response would be. It was, it was great. You know, it was fine. I got to watch my uncle be a father, and that was really, really cool. Um, and the tragedy of that would be that I never would have really gotten to know my uncle. Not really, because my uncle is active. My uncle is on the move. And if you want to get to know my uncle, you've got to move with him. And if you want to get to know God, really, for who he is, we've got to move with him. And see, the truth is that this gazing into heaven, this awe-inspired, sort of stupefied response to the person and power of Jesus is the right first step. It's the only first step that we begin to know him through his word, that we gather in community in the house of God to worship him, have our hearts warmed and stirred by him and who he is. That's the only place to begin the Christian spiritual journey. It's the only place to beginning our discipleship of Jesus. And yet I want us so, so badly to understand this reality, that as disciples of Jesus, we were meant to gaze into heaven, We were meant to be overcome with awe and worship and to study his word and to go to the conferences and to gather with other believers, but we were never meant to simply gaze into heaven. We were meant to move with God as he moves on this planet because our God is on the move. I don't know if you caught it in the beginning of the passage that we read, but um, the author of the book of Acts will say, in the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So question for you is, who is Theophilus? Who is Theophilus? That name is only mentioned one other time in our entire Bible. Uh, And some of you who maybe went to Awanus or Bible Drill as a kid, you might know where that name comes from. But if you're like me, most of us have never heard that name and don't know the significance of it. That name only appears one other place in our entire Bible. Uh, It's sort of an obscure name. It comes up one other time, and it's in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. And the author of Luke, the, the Saint Luke, the, the gospel writer, will say, hey, Theophilus, I'm writing to you an orderly account of the life and teaching of Jesus, as best as I can understand it. And so he says, in my first book, O Theophilus, so what was the first book? It's the gospel of Luke, right? And so he says, in my first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now that word began is an interesting word choice, Right? Because what happens in the Gospel of Luke? Everything. (laughs) Jesus' incarnation, the second member of the Trinity becoming human, uh, his teachings that changed the world, his radical healings that made the, the blind see and the lame walk, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The Gospel of Jesus occurs in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke will say, hey, Theophilus, that was just the beginning. That was the beginning of all that Jesus would do and teach. He said that was just the match that lit the flame that would set the whole world ablaze. See, Jesus is active today. That that was the beginning of all that God would begin to do, and he continues to move on this planet. It says that he appeared to them during 40 days, alive by many proofs, speaking of his suffering and teaching on the kingdom of God. Uh, And that's in Acts Um, chapter 1, verse 3. He was speaking to them about the kingdom of God, and that's appropriate, and that does connect us to the Gospel of Luke, because many commentators will will say that the theme of the Gospel of Luke, the theme of the writings of the author of Luke, is this idea of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. 
And so Jesus, in the first recorded sermon that we have in the Gospel of Luke, um, Jesus uh, goes to the synagogue, it says, as was his custom. They ask him to stand up and read something and say a few words. And so Jesus gets up. Uh, he walks to the front of the synagogue. He unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads to them, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. It says, then he took the scroll, rolled it back up, handed it to the attendant, and walked and sat down. And it says, every eye was on him, every step that he took. And as everybody is staring at him, anticipating what would come next, so much so that you could hear a pin drop in the room, he looks back at them and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then there's a... Um, pretty remarkable response. Some people respond with incredible joy. Other people respond to kill him. It says they moved to stone him. What happened in that moment? What just transpired? Well, see, the, old, the people of God had this expectation from the book of Isaiah, from the Old Testament prophet, that one day there would be a day, the day of the Lord, uh, the year of the Lord's favor, where God himself, Yahweh, the creator of all things, the God over the entire universe and over this world would visit them, that God himself would come and he would bring his kingdom. He would be his, the king over the kingdom. And when he came, he would set everything right, that all sad things would come untrue, that the blind would see, that the poor would be raised up, that the spiritually dead would be made alive, that God would come and he would bring his kingdom, and when his kingdom comes, he would restore all things. They had this expectation that God himself would visit his people. So Jesus reads this passage about the coming kingdom and the coming king, and he looks back at the people and he says, I'm here. I'm here. So Jesus has just committed blasphemy unless he really is God visiting his people, unless he really is the king over the kingdom. And that's the Christian message, that Jesus came to bring a kingdom of righteousness, of justice, of peace, that there would be liberty to the captives, sight to the blind, that there would be healing to the lame, and that there would be good news for all. That's Jesus, that he came to bring his kingdom. And that's good news that's good news, that Jesus came to restore every broken thing on this planet. Because as we look around in the world today, many of you, you don't need me to explain this. You feel it, that you've experienced the, the division that is rife within our nation, that families have been ripped apart because of political things, um, that you feel it, that there's just difficult things in, in your home life and in your marriage and with your kids. And when you go to bed at night, it's hard to turn your brain off because some of the dark and difficult thoughts that roll through your mind, that not all is right here. You feel it when you read the news or watch the news or um, get on the internet or scroll through social media that something is not right here, that all is not right here. And I see this often in the line of work that I do with Amira um, and Pastor Matt mentioned it, that I work for an organization called Amira. We're a, a trauma-informed aftercare service provider for survivors of human trafficking domestically. We're an anti-trafficking organization. 
And, uh, and we operate here in New England, in Connecticut, and in the United States. And that's a shock to a lot of people that, that there would need to be a response to human trafficking in Connecticut. And yet we know through our partnership with Homeland Security that there are an estimated 40 million people enslaved in the world today. That's more than the height of the African slave trade of the 1800s. That's the entire population of New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York, and Massachusetts, and New Hampshire, and Vermont, and Maine. Imagine the outcry if that many people were enslaved specifically in this region. Imagine the outcry. We know through our partnership with Homeland Security and the Department of Labor that it's an estimated $150 billion a year annually uh, criminal enterprise. The fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, the second largest, uh, second only to drug trafficking. And we know that some of the numbers are harder to come by, so there's a, a, a working theory that it actually is the most profitable criminal enterprise in the world. We know through the Global Slavery Index that there are 500,000 women alone being trafficked in the United States as we speak. And that's a very conservative estimate from the Global Slavery Index, 500,000. And lest you think that's just happening in Las Vegas or New York City, we work with the Department of Children and Families here in Connecticut, and we know through them that there have been confirmed cases of child trafficking in every single county in the state of Connecticut. It's not just on the coast. It's not just in the poorer places, it's happening everywhere, all around us. There is something not right here, and it's good news that our God sees the brokenness around us, and he moves towards it to bring restoration, to bring hope, and to bring peace. See, the truth is, for many of the people who are trafficked in the United States, they come from vulnerability, 92% of girls who are trafficked, the first time that they're trafficked is at 13 years old. And 92% of those girls who are trafficked come from poverty or abusive home lives. They're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. And um, there's a verse in our Old Testament that, that's important. Psalm 12.5 says, because the poor or the vulnerable are plundered, because the poor are taken advantage of, because the poor are plundered, and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place him or her in the safety for which she longs. Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place her in the safety for which she longs. That God looks out on the broken and the hurting in this world, and he says, you were meant to take care of each other. But when society has failed you, when your family has failed you, when the world around you has let you down, I, God, will make it my personal priority to rise on your behalf and place you in safety. And so at Amira, we just simply see ourselves as the people of God who will rise with God to place these precious women in the safety that they long for because God is on the move. He is active to restore and redeem that his gospel comes to us it changes us, and then it sends us out to be a restorative, transformative agent in the world around us, that we are meant to gaze into heaven in awe of who he is, that God would send his son to lay down his life so that we might be saved, that we might be whole, and that we might spend eternity forever with him. And we are meant to be in awe of that. And then that message of redemption 
of reconciliation of our spiritual souls because of the death of Jesus on the cross for us is meant to spurn in us, to spawn in us movement, action, activity, that we would begin to to live out this gospel in the world around us, that as he sent his son, so I am sending you, That that as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. See, Jesus loved us to the point of laying his life down for us. In the incarnation, he moves towards us. In the crucifixion and in his resurrection, he dies for us and then gives us an opportunity at a new life. And that's what Jesus has come to do for us, and that's what we're meant to do for the world. And that's what he means by, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What does that word witness mean? See, a witness is is courtroom terminology. It's somebody who tells a story. But in our biblical context, it's more than just somebody who tells a story with their mouths, though it is significantly that. It's somebody whose story represents a bigger story, that my story points to God's story, that my life looks like God's life. And then through my activity and through my words, I will proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, that we're meant to be witnesses to his love for this world. And, um, and we're meant to do that in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, often when we think about mission or witnessing for Jesus, we think about the ends of the earth. Uh, some village on the backside of nowhere that we go parachute in and bring the gospel of Jesus. That's what we think of when we think of mission, when we think of justice, when we think of service. And yet, Jesus says, you're meant to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so where was Jerusalem for these original disciples? It was the ground underneath their feet, right? He says, you're meant to be my witnesses right where you're standing. And then in Judea, which was the surrounding region. And then in Samaria, which was the neighboring region that was made up of their religious and political rivals. He says, I want you to display the sacrificial, others-centered, loving, lay-down-your-life kind of love towards your religious and political rivals. So how do you respond to your religious and political rivals? Do you rise up and go to war? Or do you step in like Jesus and lay down your life for them? Jesus says, I want you to be the witnesses of my love in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then on to the ends of the earth. And so I'll close with this. Um, I just came through a season of life um, where uh, a lot of my friends got married. Uh, Before the pandemic, I was in seven different weddings. So like a groomsman, seven different weddings, um, or officiating, and all of my friends were getting married. They were just dropping like flies. Uh, All of them gone. And and I was left asking the question, how did these guys pull that off? (laughs) Uh, Because I knew them in college. I knew some of them in high school. And I'm like, that guy, how did he convince a beautiful, capable, intelligent woman to say yes to spending the rest of her life with him. Particularly my youngest brother, John, whose wedding I officiated uh, this past uh, December. How did he convince a beautiful woman to say yes to spending their, like, it wasn't that long ago. I'm a few years older than him, so I actually remember not that long ago, just a few years ago, little John sitting in the backyard in the mud with Sam, his brother, and the two of them were, were chewing on trying to consume rocks, hard rocks, And my mom walked into the backyard and said, 
what are you doing? And they looked up at her and they said, so we can have hard muscles, right? <laughs> that guy just convinced a beautiful, capable, intelligent woman to spend the rest of her life with him. How did he do that? How did they do that? I think it was two things. Number one, they showed them that they had character, integrity, and that they were men who they could trust. That they stepped into the world with responsibility and with dignity. And then they moved towards their beloved. They initiated. Um, and not just in her best moments, but in her worst moments. That they were there for her. And then significantly, a moment came when they opened their mouths and they spoke the truth that was in their heart. And they said, I love you. I can't imagine life without you. Come run with me. Let's do this together. So they showed them and then they told them. They opened their mouths and they spoke the truth of the love that was inside of them. And so, how do you convince someone like Maureen, who has been trafficked from the time that she was a young teenager, through the use of force, fraud, or coercion, to enter into a life that's more horrific than any of us could even begin to imagine? How do you convince somebody like Maureen, who was trafficked from the time she was a child, and then turned 18 and was arrested for prostitution? A victim for whom it was never her choice turned into a criminal. How do you convince somebody like that that there is a God in heaven who loves her? How do you convince her? I think two things. You first show her. There's an initiation that you move towards her. And so through Amira's outreach groups, we met her while she was in prison. We heard her story, and we heard week after week as we showed up, again and again, we heard that her greatest fear was when the prison doors swung open, it wouldn't be to freedom. It would be to bondage. That the first face that she saw, she was sure was going to be the face of her trafficker. But because we had initiated and moved towards her and we knew her story, instead of her trafficker's face that day, when those prison doors swung open, it wasn't her trafficker's face. It was the bright, shining, hope-filled faces of Amira's staff lit up by the love of Christ that were there waiting for her to welcome her into our aftercare facility, our residential home. And we begin to just shower her with love, provide her with the basic physical needs, with trauma care. Uh, and it wasn't long for her before the love of others pointed to the love of another. And the love of the people of God showed her the love of the God of the universe. And so just a year ago, right before I joined staff at Amira, uh, Maureen stood on a beach in the North Shore of Massachusetts and um, with Amira's staff and her church staff by her side, she was baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And our name, Amira, means princess. It means daughter of the king. And the idea is that every woman that comes to us would go from seeing herself as victim, or seeing herself as property, or abused, to seeing herself as daughter of King Jesus, beloved forever. And the beautiful thing about her story is she is now a witness of the saving mercy of Jesus. And as a volunteer there, when I was a seminary student, I got to witness that after dinner on certain nights of the week, the women of the home that had been um, rescued and redeemed would gather and they would light a candle and they would pray this prayer. They would say, Dear Lord, as we light this candle, may we remember the women who are still out there. May they find hope and courage in this light to one day join us at our table. And that is such a beautiful picture of what it is to be a Christian. 
that we were lost in the dark and without hope. And in the kindness of God, he sent his son Jesus to pull us out, to rescue us, to seat us around his table, a new seat of fellowship, to welcome us in, to give us a new name and a new life and a new story. And as we recognize the rescuing work that's happened in our hearts, that we're meant to get caught up in that rescuing activity, and we were meant to gaze into heaven in awe of who Jesus is, and then to go, to move with him as he moves on this world, on this planet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning, and thank you for an opportunity uh, to dive into your word. Thank you for the power that's inherent within. Lord, we love you. We trust you. And uh, we believe, God, that you are active. You're, you're active to heal the hurts of our hearts individually. You're active to restore our families in their brokenness. You're active to restore um, communities and nations. And you're active to, to move towards those who are vulnerable, those who are hurting, and those who are exploited. And so, God, I just pray that for those of us that don't yet know you, but we're interested in spiritual things, and maybe we tuned in online this morning just to, to see what the Christians are up to. God, I pray that that message would, would land deep in some hearts. That Jesus wasn't just an interesting man. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was the rescuer. He is the king. And so, Lord, I pray that some hearts would turn to you. And then, God, for those of us who have spent our lives in the house of God, but we've never really moved with you, Lord, I pray that you would just give that joyful invitation to our hearts this morning, that your invitation is come run with me as I spread my love to this world. That we would be reminded that your invitation doesn't leave us purposeless and alone, but it fills us with purpose, with mission, and with joy. And that we would see where you are, and we would say, God, where are you going? Because that's the only place that I want to be. And we would experience you anew as we walk side by side with you into the needs and the hurts of this world. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your rescue, and we pray that we would be a rescuing people. In Jesus' name, amen.